Well, I'd like to pray with you for a minute before we look into God's Word, so why don't we just do that? Kind Father, in many ways, it's, uh, it sort of just takes our breath away. This amazing grace we've sung about and referenced through this service, we thank you so much that Christ came, that you were willing to come, Lord Jesus, that even when uh, the thought of what you would face in being separated from your Father and having my sin laid on you, um, you said, you know, Father, is there any other way? You were still willing. And so we thank you for the sweetness of amazing grace. Grateful that we can have relationship with you. Grateful that because of Christ, um, we have access to the Father, to God. Grateful that because of Christ, the Word of God uh, through His Spirit is opened up to us and we can understand it and appreciate it and, and not just um, fill our heads with more knowledge, but really in a transformational way. The Spirit of God reveals Your Word and we, we're, we're shaped by it. Um, our directions in life and our attitudes and the things we think about. So thank you for your word. And as we consider it now, we pray that you just speak in those very personal ways to us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. On Tuesday, I had a very interesting experience. Um, I was with my dad for a few hours. And for the first time in many years, I didn't yell at him. Now, some of you are thinking, that's potentially very disturbing to think that Scott yells at his dad every time he's with him. Let me explain. My dad is basically completely deaf. Not completely, but almost. And for me to have a conversation with him in which he gets maybe, I don't even know. I'm going to say a third of what I say, a half. I'll have to yell. And quite honestly, by the end of a lengthy conversation with him, it's, it's quite exhausting. Definitely worth it, but it's exhausting. I haven't been able to speak with him on the phone for many years. And on Tuesday, um, I had a very interesting experience. Because I was in Saskatoon with him. And uh, six weeks before that, he'd had an operation in Edmonton in which they implanted a device called a cochlear hearing implant. And after the wound heals up after six weeks or so, on Tuesday, they enabled that device for the first time. And immediately, he could hear, in, as I spoke to him in just fairly normal speaking voice, sometimes slightly elevated, he could hear 95% of what was being said. And even though it's a process of three to six months where you basically have to relearn how to hear and how to sort of uh, ignore some of the extraneous noises, um, at one point in the Royal University Hospital in Saskatoon, I walked down the hallway away and I took out my cell phone and I called him and he heard the phone ring and we spoke on the phone for the first time really in years. 
his nose was running a little bit, and he sniffed a little bit, and he said, I just heard myself sniff. I haven't heard that in years. He drove home to Sask- from Saskatoon to Regina later in that day as we were driving back to Lethbridge on Tuesday. And when he arrived in Regina, he heard the voice of his youngest granddaughter for the first time. Even though she's 12 years old, he couldn't pick up her vocal range, and so he'd really never heard her. So he heard Megan for the first time. And as we were driving back on Tuesday from Saskatoon, and I was reflecting on this incredible gift from God and that medical science provided as well, I thought to myself, uh, that's how life is intended to be. And we've all had experiences in life where, where it just worked right. And we think this is how life was meant to be. And then there's times in life where life falls quite short of, we think, of, what, of what we thought it intended to be. I'm, I'm thinking of a few instances. I remember when I was 12 years old, I was in California with my family, and we went to visit these shirt tail relatives of ours, and we had supper at their house and in their backyard. I remember walking out into the backyard, and they had a pool on the left, and on the right, they had this large orange tree. And I went up to the orange tree, and I plucked one of the ripe oranges, and I opened it up, and there was so much juice, it was running all down my face and all over my entire hand, and it was incredibly delicious. And then you go to one of our local grocery stores here or the fridge for an orange that was picked, you know, X number of days ago. And you're thinking, I don't know if this is how life was intended to be. Not that I would know what it feels like, but when you know, think of the difference between a really good haircut that you get from Marissa or Anne Marie and the standard bowl cut you'll get at some other place. And then finally... When you think about the captain of the Rough Riders holding up the Grey Cup versus what happened this year with Calgary, you see the contrast between life as it was meant to be and the way it really is. What about back in the beginning when it all started? And we began a series of messages that began talking about that last week called In the Beginning God, the first four words of the first verse of the first chapter of the first book that talks in that chapter, and we talked about the fact that in that chapter it has seven days, and it goes through how God made it all happen, but we focused more so on the verses and the ideas in that chapter that tell us and show us how there really is a God. And those first four words are perhaps the most profound argument for the existence of God as they talk about eternity and the idea of the cosmological argument. And there has to be an eternal something. And we looked through these ideas that indeed you have to have some faith to believe there's a God, but every worldview requires faith. And it's entirely reasonable entirely plausible to believe that there's a God. And you absolutely do not have to deep freeze your brain to do that. In fact, I would suggest some of the other worldviews take a lot more faith than the faith is required to believe that there's a God. And so we began last week this series of messages that we're going to be doing for a while in the book of Genesis in the opening chapters. And this morning we want to talk about how God intended life to be. 
So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Genesis, that first book, Genesis chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the back table there. You're welcome to go borrow one, or, or if you can't afford one, we will give you a Bible. We want you to have a scripture in your hand. Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, and this is one of the reasons, because of the specific, uh, the specific references of geographic locations that we believe that this is a real place, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees that grew up out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll, we'll talk about that last one next week. The tree of life is not really referenced again in this, in this, in this chapter, but talked about again in the book of Revelation. So in the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering all the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Fishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper, helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Life as God originally intended it. And really, some foreshadowing as well for what's to come. 
You know, there's a poem, and one of the lines in this poem is, for, all, for of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. And this passage talks about what God originally attended in terms of our relationship with him, our relationship to nature, and we see our relationship to people. And it's a picture of the way he wanted it to play out until we come along in chapter 3 and mucked things up and made choices that went off the path that he wanted us to be on. So how did God plan for it to be? How did life as he intended it, how did that, did he want it to plan out? And so let's talk about the different realms that he talks about in this passage. And the first one that he intended was the relationship that we have with him. And we see this in verse 15. It says, and God put man in the garden. Now that word there, put, is significant because it contrasts with the word put in verse 8. In verse 8, it's just a normal Hebrew word for the word put. There's nothing special about it. He just says, it just means in verse 8, he just put them in there. But in verse 15, there's this particular Hebrew word given that's translated with, it has two special concepts or meanings behind it. And it really means that God put him in a place of rest and safety. And the world that God had created all around him was this incredibly beautiful place. But the text, as we read it, seems to suggest that in some way the garden was just a bit of a notch above. Breathtakingly beautiful place. It has a fresh, unpolluted supply of water from these four rivers that the, he geographically locates and roughly speaking, where the garden is in that area. And it has this supply of fresh, unpolluted water that flows in and nourishes the garden. And the, the, the garden and the earth is full of rich vegetation and nutrients, and, and it wasn't difficult at this point for things to grow. You didn't need fertilizers. You didn't need things to control the weeds because that wasn't something that came until later. And things grew in a way that are way beyond anything that's been our common experience. And it was lush. It says in verse, in verse um, 9 and in verse 18, 17, rather, it was lush and full of food, and the food was good to eat. And I like to call it, and I've called it this for many years, the perfectly perfect environment. And this idea in verse 15 of being put in a place of safety and rest, it was a, t a place to rest that when it was time to rest, like we talked about a little bit last week in chapter 1, when it was time to rest, this place was a place that was deeply conducive to healthy rest. A place of rest. And a place of safety. They didn't have to worry about locking their doors. And I know they didn't have doors, but imagine with me they had doors. They wouldn't have had to lock them because no one was going to come and rob them. It was a totally safe place to be. It was a place where you wouldn't get sick, a place where there was no stress, a place where no bad attitudes were manifested and no inappropriate motives. It was a place of security and a place of safety. We sang about that earlier in one of the songs, if you noticed. I think the second song we sang was a picture of heaven, 
and it talked about these truths, a place of no sickness, of no sin, of no stress, of no bad motives, that's safe and secure. So this word put in verse 15 means you're going to be, he was put into a place of rest and safety, but also put into God's presence. And when you consider the context of chapters 1 through 3, you see that he was put in a place of unhindered relationship with God. This relationship was not tarnished in any way. It wasn't dented. It wasn't marred. It wasn't blocked. It wasn't cheapened by sin. And he had this unhindered, barrier-free relationship with the only one who had ever and would ever perfectly love him. Who had, as we talked about extensively last week, who had provided for him in every conceivable way. Who had thought it through carefully. And so he could worship God, he could obey God, and he have proper motives as he did it, and have an unhindered, unfettered relationship with God. And I was, you know, when I was thinking about this as I'm reading the text, I'm thinking, is there any illustration I could use to try to flesh this out? Impossible. Because it's completely outside of the realm of our experience. And we can only read this text and try to imagine what it must have been like. But we know this, God created it, God directed it, God is called on to be glorified in it, and this is a kingdom-oriented text. And this is all wrapped up in this word put in verse 15. But there's also stuff that's talked about about our relationship. When we talk about life as God intended it, um, relationship to nature. And so they're put in, as I've referenced already, he's put into this incredible environment with fresh water and, and just, uh, you know, countless beautiful trees and there's plenty to eat and it's not just, you know, sustaining him, it's really good to eat, it's very flavorable and delicious. And it says in the end of chapter 1 in verses 28 to 30 that the plants and the animals are to be used for food and the needs that they have. And so we still do this to this day. We are able to create medicines with the raw materials that God provided, clothing as they did in chapter 3, uh, supplies to build, chap uh, to build shelter as they did in chapter 3, and everything that we need he provided in nature and in the creation for us. Walter Brueggemann, writing about this, he says, the destiny of human creation is to live in God's world with God's other creatures on God's terms. On God's terms. And so he supplies all of this for us to consume and responsibly care for. It says that in verse 15. We're to care for this. And the idea is responsibly. And God planned well. This is one of the things we talked about last week is, is the, the, when you look at the creation, you can't get away from the fact that some thought went into this, that there's a grand designer out there who's incredibly complex that created something very simple by comparison. And some serious thought went into it in a sense that the creation was made in such a way to supply the needs of billions and billions of people and untold billions of animals and birds and fish and insects that could coexist together. 
And so he supplies this in nature for us. And, and chapter 2 gives another perspective on chapter 1. And he creates all this and he says to use it. But what else does he say? Let me read to you verse 26 of chapter 1 and then a couple verses in chapter 2. In chapter 1 it says, And then God said, Remember, this is the first time that the theological concept of Trinity is referenced. Then God, written in the singular, said, let us, it switches to the plural. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and all the creatures that move along the ground. And then chapter 2, verse 15, says the Lord the, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And then 19 and 20, it says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. In the perfectly perfect environment, Adam was to work. Adam was to work in this kingdom-oriented environment. And all through Scripture, work is seen as an act of worship. That we don't work for others, we work as unto the Lord. And work is an act of worship, not meant to be a drudgery. And when we read chapter 2, we see that work is part of perfection in the perfectly perfect environment. And I imagine, as we sang about earlier in this service, but as I imagine, I believe in heaven, not only will we be worshiping and obeying, but we will be working. And we will enjoy the as this foreshadows the perfectly perfect environment of heaven. So not only was he supposed to work, but he was to rule. Now, does that mean, as some people have mistakenly assumed, if you read some historical stuff, that we're to just crush the environment? Absolutely not. He was to care for the creation. He carefully went about, think of how long it would have taken to name all those animals. Adam must have been a very creative guy. He gives all the names to these animals. So let me just ask you some rhetorical questions that really only you can answer when we, when we think about this. As Christians, given what Adam is told to do by God, as Christians, should we recycle and reuse? And to what extent should we be doing that? If Jesus was here right now, would he carpool home? Would he Uber home with a few other people? What's the difference between wasteful consumption and reasonable, responsible consumption? When I was in Israel a number of years ago, one of the first things they say to you is to be careful with the amount of water you use. They talk about this all the time, and I watched as the plants were being watered, they never waste a drop that I could see. They would individually water each tree and the different plants. And they, taught, and they said, when you have a shower, get wet, turn the water off, soap up, and then, then rinse it off. And they would say to us, listen, you come from a country that has a third of the fresh water in the world, so you tend to waste it. 
and the idea of carefully and responsibly and reasonably consuming what God has presented us to with is important. When Steph prints the bulletin each week, she doesn't just print hundreds of bulletins. She sits down and she says, okay, there's probably going to be about 400 or so people in church on Sunday. How many bulletins do I need? Because I don't want to waste them. And it's not just about wasting God's money, but also we're very cognizant of the fact that the scripture says we should be careful with our consumption. He wants us to care for and not abuse the creation. And so I just simply ask you, and only you can answer this, what does that look like in your life? To care for the environment. If you keep reading, if you were to read verses 15 through 17, it says in verse 17 that there's this vocational call on our life. When we think about life as God intended it, and he says to Adam in verse 15, go out and work and care for the garden. Then in verse 16, he he gives permission. He says, all of these plants and these animals, uh, you're to be using them in a responsible manner. You're free to eat and, and to enjoy the good food that's been provided. And then in verse 17, there's this prohibition. You may not eat of this one particular tree. And as I read chapter 2, despite the prohibition of verse 17, you can see, I would argue that God has this higher purpose in mind than our failure. He's calling on us in chapter 2 to choose life. He's calling on us to live and to grow and to develop and to enjoy this world all in the context of honoring and glorifying him. And this is the call to me of chapter 2 that's not gone away. Live and grow and develop and enjoy this world all for his honor and his glory. Then there's the relationship to people. And it says uh, in chapter 1 verse 27 and then it's implied in chapter 2 verse 7, that we are all created in the image of God. And we took some time to talk about that last week. We talked about the fact that, you know, the animals, great creation of God, but that when it came to man, he did something special. He said, we're going to create them in in our own image, God said. And so I'm going to create them with intellect and emotions and will and the ability to differentiate between right and wrong and to think in the abstract abstract and to consider the idea of eternity and even though they won't totally grasp that that he could at least wrestle with it a bit and the implications of that and so we're created in the in the image of God and what implications does that have for our relationship with other people I would say this you've never locked eyes with a person that doesn't matter to God you've never been in a conversation or sat next to, or seen a picture on TV of someone that wasn't made in the image of God, that matters to God. And that's significant. The last six of the Ten Commandments all talk about how we're to relate to people. And in the New Testament, Jesus is in dialogue with this person And he asks them to summarize the Ten Commandments. And the person summarizes those last six commandments by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've got it bang on. And what he's saying is, there needs to be in our life 
a proper, healthy self-love that then is generously extended to other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. So how should that impact the way we speak to them and about them? What's, you know, when we talk about life as God intended it, how should that impact the way we care for people around us physically and spiritually and emotionally? Certainly we're called on to care for the creation, the animals, but cre- people created in the image of God have a special place in the heart of God. These are people from whom, for whom Jesus gave his life. And this is God's plan from the beginning. And this, this, this idea is illustrated again in chapter 2 because when Adam is naming all the animals, we talked about this last week uh, in the seven days of chapter 1, um, all the way through that chapter at strategic moments, God steps back and he looks at the creation and he evaluates it and he says, yes, things are going according to plan, things are on time, I've got the resources I need to make this happen, and, he, and, and at strategic moments he says, this is good, and this is good, and this is good. And this is good. And he says it over and over again in an evaluative way all the way through chapter 1. But all of a sudden, towards the end of chapter 2, for the first time in God's sort of uh, emerging horticultural experiment, all of a sudden he stops and he says, "Uh uh-oh, something's not quite as good as I wanted it. Because among all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, as wonderful as they are for Adam, and even though I've provided for his every physical need, I've, na- I've made note of the fact that there's no suitable helper, it says in verse 18, there's no suitable helper for Adam. And I, I understand as I was creating mankind, I created human beings to be in community and to be different that way. And so he creates woman. And God says, I'm going to create one who complements him. They, that they were meant to be together, to work and to serve in conjunction. And this idea of community. And he says, I'm going to create human beings to be social creatures who um, thrive in close and personal relationships. And of course, they can be met in a variety of ways. And in chapter 2, the illustration of the way that it can be met is in marriage. That's not the only way it can be met. There's other ways that it can be met. But the illustration he chooses to elaborate on to to meet this social need is, is marriage. And so he says, and let me read 24 and 25 again. He says, for this reason, to meet this need that this guy has, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So marriage is something I've spoken to you about a number of times. But let me, because we're just, as we're moving through the text, this is what's coming up. Let's talk about this for just a couple of minutes together. So marriage is a promise we see in the verse to pursue oneness. And when I conduct weddings or when I do premarital counseling with people, I'll talk about this and I'll, I'll say something like this. You know, there's, there's, there's perception that I'm marrying this, per, this person um, out in the culture. I'm marrying this person because of they can do this and this and this and this and this for me. 
and we tend to put the emphasis on what they can do for me. And there's nothing wrong with the things they can do for me, but as you study marriage in Scripture, I think the emphasis is a lot more on what God wants to do in me in a developmental sense to contribute to the marriage. He wants me to learn about sacrifice. He wants me to learn about an unconditional love, about of an idea of me surrendering to that person, of me being accountable to that person, and, and shaping my heart and my attitudes and the decisions I make so that I can love that person more effectively. And it's, again, there's nothing wrong with them loving me and being able to do this, that, and the other thing for me, but really the emphasis is on what God wants to do in my life to make my relationship with that person increasingly more and more healthy. Very different way of looking at it than we commonly hear out in the culture. And so it means I'm going to covenant to pursue oneness. It means to leave. Now in that setting, biblical setting, as the, as the, the number of people began to grow, the idea of leaving is, is basically moving from this tent in the compound to that tent in the compound over there. But it's, it's an illustration of a big idea. And, it, and what he's saying is in terms of human relationships, there is no other human relationship that takes precedent over your relationship with your spouse, whether it's with your parents or your best friend or your kids, if you have them one day. No other human relationship is to be as important as the relationship you have with your spouse. And that you will love, actually love your kids more effectively when you love your spouse and make them, humanly speaking, the priority. And so we never let silly things like money or time or career or even some other person become more important to us than that spouse is. And so we, in some of the older translations, it says cleave or, or united in some of the more modern ones. It literally means to weld. The Hebrew there means to weld, to glue together based on a covenant, based on a promise. And you become one flesh. And there's this developmental process of, of, of sexual relationship, of becoming one flesh. And God looks at this and says, this is very good. Very good. So God had a way, when you read in chapter 2, of what he intended it to be. And we can see this laid out in chapter 2. And that was the way he, he planned on us a plan for us to relate to him and to relate to nature and to work in nature and to enjoy it and all that, and, uh, and also to each other. And this affects how we live and how we um, uh, grasp life and what is to come yet one day. And here is some really good news. The good news that we talked about when we sang, I think it was the second song we sang, the day is coming when it will be so much like that again. When Christ returns and we reign with him in heaven and we will once again be in a perfectly perfect environment. Not unlike, not exactly like, but not unlike the garden. With no sin in this new place, heaven. No possibility of sin. 
Revelation says no darkness, no tears, no pain, that sin will have been dealt with and judged. It will be a place of safety, a place of rest, a place of something we've never experienced, actually pure motives, a full and unhindered, barrier-free relationship of worship and obedience to the God of the Bible, the one who's always perfectly loved us, the only one who's always perfectly loved us, a place of beauty, a place of work, a place of pure enjoyment. Now that sounds inviting. That sounds very inviting to me. And it says in John chapter 14, Jesus is chatting with his leadership team, and he says, really soon, in those first six verses of 14, he says, really soon, I'm going to prepare this place for you. A place for each person who has surrendered the sin of their life to Jesus, to be dealt with by him on the cross. In a, in a very exclusive way, it says in verse 6, there's no other way. We like to think there's other ways. We like to think there's other options. But there's really, if you're going to be biblically accurate at all, and if you're not, or if you want to argue with Jesus, you can. He says there's only one way to deal with it, and that's to surrender your sin and have my substitutionary death, speaking of Jesus, applied in your life. And to surrender your sin and to surrender your life and to surrender your agenda and, and, and everything you do in life. Let me reshape those. Let me mold those. Let me walk with you day by day. And finally, let, me, let you surrender your forever to me. And this is how God intended life to be. In the garden and then one day again in heaven. And he wants, us to, he wants that to shape and inform how we do life. Life as God intended it. I'd like to close our service in prayer. So I invite you to...